Turn with me to Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Father, I thank you that um, we are the recipient of so many of your blessings, um, so many of the things that um, just come from your gracious hand. We tend to take for granted, and worse, there are moments when we would make them um, somehow connect to our worthiness of them. So God, I pray today that you'd use this passage to open our eyes and our hearts to the reality of what we are really like and how we can put our hope and our trust in our good works and that you would help us to see ourselves so clearly today and then know what to do and how to run to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, identifies that the story commonly known as the prodigal son is not only about the son who ran away, but it's also about the son who stayed home. You see, the son who ran away came back, and if you remember the story, uh, his father was grateful to see him, threw him a large party, but that's only part of the story. The other story is the fact that this elder brother who didn't run away, but his heart was still far away from his family, gets angry because he thinks in his mind and even says to his father, here, I've been serving you all these years and you've never thrown me a party like this. And it's the stunning contrast between the brokenness of the prodigal son and the arrogance of the elder brother that makes the story of the prodigal son such a, a strong message. 
In that book, um, Prodigal God, Keller identifies what he calls a elder brother mentality. It's a serious thing, a, a, a scary concept. And I want to introduce it to you today and help you see how it fits in the text that we're talking about. He describes the elder brother mentality this way. Elder brothers expect their goodness to pay off, and if it doesn't, there is confusion and rage. If you think goodness and decency is the way to merit a good life from God, you will be eaten up by anger since life never goes as we wish. You will always feel that you are owed more than you are getting. You will always see someone doing better than you in some aspect of life and will ask, why this person and not me after all I've done? This resentment is your own fault. It is caused not by the prosperity of the other person, but by your own effort to control life through performance. The elder brother mentality. I've heard Keller also say this, a very poignant way to capture what we're talking about this morning. He said this, The main thing separating you and God is not your sin, but your damnable good works. That's a strong statement. The main thing separating you from God is not your sins, or maybe not just your sin, but your damnable good works. In other words, it's not just the bad stuff that we do. It's not the stuff that we feel guilty about. The real problem is our so-called good works. Because we use those works to justify ourselves, make ourselves feel righteous, make salvation something that we've earned or deserve, or convince ourselves that somehow we deserve a better life than what we have received. And so doing our self-justifying works then are damnable. They're not part of the problem. They're the main problem. And what happens is that in Matthew 19, Jesus sets up a contrast between faith and works. And Matthew records this incident between the disciples and children and then Jesus and the rich young ruler in order to contrast faith versus works and dependency versus self-assurance. And today I want to try and show you the difference between these two categories And I hope to show you why it is likely that there are more kids than rich men in heaven. So first, the the beauty of a dependent faith. In verses 13 and 14, Matthew picks up on a theme that we have heard before. He identifies the value of this childlike dependency, and then he warns about people who would hinder it. Apparently what was happening is there were some children who were coming to Jesus in order so he could lay his hands on them and bless them. This was a common practice in Jesus' time, dated all the way back to the Day of Atonement, when in the evening parents would bring their children and would be prayed over and blessed by the priest, the holy man, the, the, the high priest of that day. Parents would then bring their children in this respect and ask the spiritual authority to pray over their children. Jesus himself Um, experienced this in Luke chapter 2 as his parents brought him for this very purpose. However, the disciples missed the importance of this moment. In verse 13, it tells us that they rebuked the people for bringing the children to Jesus. Apparently, they thought that Jesus had more important things to do and he shouldn't be bothered with the request to have these children be blessed. And so he says three things in verse 14. He says, let the children come to me. He's interested in having them near. He says, do not hinder them. The original language suggests, disciples, stop doing what you're already doing. Stop hindering them. Let them come. And then he says this, for such 
or for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says here that there is something more going on here than children and blessing. We've heard this before. Matthew 18. Take your Bible, go back a couple pages. Jesus, in another situation, said nearly the same thing. He used children as an illustration. But in this context, it was a rather comical and embarrassing moment for the disciples because they were walking along the side of the road and arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Can you just imagine this conversation? Someone says, no, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm on the varsity. You're on the B team. You're like a junior higher. You're nothing. Yeah, I can take you. And, and, and Peter's like, I'm all state when it comes to discipleship. And then, oh yeah, I'm all American. I'm dream team. So you get this idea. It's just terrible. And then Jesus in another context, uh, another book of the Bible, it tells us that he asked them, so what was going on on the road there? And the disciples are seriously busted at this moment. And then Jesus uses this illustration of children to drive his point home. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice, become like children. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses a child as an illustration of what greatness really looks like. He says, unless you turn and become like a child, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying that kingdom living, being his disciples, and even eternal life is somehow linked to a characteristic common with children. Become like children. Now, in an earlier sermon on that text, Matthew 18, I explained that Jesus is using children here not as an example of humility. He doesn't say be be humble like a child. He says humble yourself like a child. Nor is he identifying the innocence of a child because all parents know that children are neither innocent nor humble. Rather, he's calling for the one characteristic that is both common and natural to all children, and that is utter dependency. It is that children, by definition, are dependent on their parents. And one of the marks of growing up is you become more independent. And that means that every parent in every house is trying to teach their children how to grow up so they can get out, right? The goal is we want you out of here. That's the goal. And so, kids, that's what your mom and dad are working on. They're trying to get you out of the house. It's not a good thing for you to come back. That's not what they want, nor what you want. So everyone agrees we're trying to get you grown up. Independence is the goal, but spiritually, dependence is the goal. And that's why Jesus says in verse 14 of chapter 19, For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Childlike dependence is the central quality of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. Now you might wonder, well, Mark, dependence, dependence on what? What, what, is it, what do you mean dependence? Dependence on... And I want to explain this very briefly to you because you won't understand the next section unless you don't know what Jesus is talking about here. Essentially, the Bible tells me that my main problem in life is me. It's not my mom, it's not my dad, it's not my context, it's not my school... It's it's me. I'm the problem. I'm a sinner. It means that not only do I do bad things, but it means that everything that I do is tainted by my sinfulness. So that even the very good things that I would do, they're still affected by questionable motives or manipulated ends or self-congratulatory thoughts. There's no one, Romans 3 tells us, who does anything good. 
therefore there's no way for me to ever pay for my sins on my own because everything that I would do would be somehow affected by my own sinfulness. And this is where the Bible intersects into this tragic story with the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is that God has made a way for me to be forgiven of my sins and to be saved even from my own self by taking the death of Jesus Christ and applying his death to my spiritual account. Since he was perfect and since he paid the atonement for sins, God can take his death and apply it to me, take my sins and apply it to him and give Christ my unrighteousness while giving him my righteousness. And and the scandal of the creation is that salvation comes to those who put their faith in Christ's death in that God makes him to be sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is amazing grace. That is why the cross is a sacred symbol for those in the Christian faith. It means that I placed my dependence on Christ's work. The first step in coming to this realization is understanding that I can't do this on my own. I can't self-atone. My good works are not enough to balance the scales. And essentially the problem is not just what I do. The problem is who I am. And I need Christ to literally change the something inside of me that I can't change on my own, which is my dark heart. And this dark heart is there by definition as a human being doesn't matter where you've grown up, what your background is, what kind of religious experience you've had in the past. The reality is all of us have darkened hearts. When I was in Ukraine, I um, saw this cute little three-year-old girl who was part of our traveling party, and she got started to get out of the van. Mom went in front of her. Mom reached back and grabbed her hand, and the little girl purred, pulled it away and said, Sava! And I, I don't speak Ukraine, Ukrainian, but I knew what that was. That was sin, was what that was right there. I knew that that was sinful. And I said to her, what what did she just say? And the mom was kind of embarrassed, and she said, it translated, it's me do. Like, ah, I get that, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're Ukrainian or if you're American, it doesn't matter if you speak English or Russian or Japanese, it doesn't matter if you're white or black or Latino. the, The issue is what's on the inside, And it is the me-do mentality that dooms the human heart. And coming to faith in Christ means that you realize, I can't do this. I need your help. And that is the heart of the gospel. Which is what Jesus is trying to drive at. That utter dependency, turning from yourself and turning to Christ, is the essence of salvation. It's the heart of the kingdom. It's the critical difference between those who are in heaven and those who are in hell. Let me state it. Bluntly and clearly, hell will be filled with people who did good works. Which is why Keller says that our problem is our damnable good works. In contrast to that is complete dependency on Christ. He's the solution so that when you stand before a holy, righteous judge, as we just sung about, who's omnipresent, who's omnipotent, and he asks, how can you... Pay for your sins. The only answer is Christ. That's all I have. And then all of eternity is spent around the beautiful reality of knowing Christ and Him crucified. He becomes the defining mark of your life now and for all of eternity. That's the essence of the gospel. And people who believe this have their sins atoned for. Those who don't are still under judgment. That's what the Bible's all about. 
And this is what Jesus is driving at, this message. In contrast to that is the rich young ruler. Verse 16 begins with the word behold. And I think Matthew puts these two stories together on purpose. He wants us to see the stunning contrast between the children and the rich young ruler. It's likely that the disciples are pretty excited that this rich young ruler comes their direction because if he were to join their ranks, this would be a big win. This, this guy would be a superstar on their team. The conversation in verse 16 begins with the young man asking Jesus a question, and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? The question reveals immediately his orientation. His orientation is, what can I do? What can I do in order to inherit eternal life? His problem, as we'll see, is not his wealth. The problem is not his age. The problem isn't his status in life. The problem here is his self-assurance. It's a stunning question that he would ask. What can I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then zeroes in on his problem of self-reliance. He begins by addressing his use of the word good. He's targeting the fact that this man doesn't even know what good is. He has misplaced definitions. And here's what happens when your heart is full of self-deceit and self-assurance is that you don't even know what words mean anymore. You talk about good deeds and you don't even know what good is. In fact, your good deeds are damnable deeds, but you think they're good. And so what happens when you become self-deceived and self-assured, you, you write words in your own dictionary convincing yourself that you're right, while meanwhile you increase your level of self-deception. And this is what happens. He points him, Jesus points the man then back to his own system of self-righteousness. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not suggesting that this is how he will inherit eternal life. He's unpacking and playing by his own rules. He's unpacking this man and his system and showing him that there's no way that he can live this way. Or he's going to try and show him this way. Truth. Jesus is showing this man that absolute obedience to the law is a requirement for salvation. And that's the beautiful reality of Jesus' perfect obedience. That's why that verse, as I quoted it earlier, he became sin who knew no sin. It, it, it's a beautiful thing that Christ perfectly obeyed the law and then suffered the consequences of disobeying the law so that when those who receive Christ and put their trust in him, they're not only forgiven of their sin, that's half of justification or complete forgiveness. The other half is God treats them as if they perfectly obeyed. That's powerful grace. He's playing then by the young ruler's rules in order to expose his self-assurance. So Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Amazingly, the young man asks, which commandments? His arrogance is starting to show even further. In verse 18, Jesus says, gives him five of the Ten Commandments, and then also says the Great Commandment, which calls for loving one's neighbor. And on hearing this, the young man responds in verse 20 with a... I think, a scary statement. He says, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Now, I can just imagine all the angels in heaven going, watch this, roasted ruler coming. Because this is, this is arrogance beyond the pale. 
All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Unknown to this man is the fact that Jesus has just found the floor of his righteousness or his self-righteousness. He tragically believes that he's arrived. He has overestimated his good works, which amounts to a double tragedy. And whenever anyone overestimates their good works, whenever they think that I've done all of these, what do I still lack? When everyone has that kind of view of themselves, either before Christ or after, there's always a double tragedy. In the first case, it's a tragedy because you end up believing that you have arrived when you are very far from eternal life. Or you think you've arrived when you're very far from righteousness. It's tragic because of the level of self-deception. It's crazy. You think you've arrived and you're actually really, really far away. The second tragedy is the fact that his good works only serve to reinforce his self-deception and his lost condition. So not only is he far away and deceived, but every time he does something good and he thinks, oh yeah, nailed it. Every time he does that, it just reinforces the fact that he thinks that he's righteous when in fact he isn't. And all of his good works were intended to make him righteous, but now are making him further and further from that reality. This, This is scary. It's tragic. And it happens all the time. Jesus then focuses his answer in a way that he knows will expose this man for who he really is. The young ruler says he wants eternal life through good works, and he believes that he's done everything he's needed, so Jesus hits him hard. And he says, if you would be perfect, he's going to give him something to do. If you would be perfect, do this. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And what Jesus does is he assaults this man's self-assurance by calling him to forsake his puffed-up confidence and to do something that would strip him of his pride and follow Jesus. Why would it strip him of his pride? Here's why. Because in Jesus' day, and we pick this up in the book of Job, There was often this mentality that there was a straight line from good behavior to good blessings. People who did good things got good things from God. People who did bad things did bad things from, got got bad things from God. And that's what Job was all about. How can a righteous man receive bad from God and not have something inherently wrong with, I mean deeply, deeply wrong. Surely these bad things from God are his statement that he's not pleased with you. And Job in the book says, I've done nothing wrong. I, I've confessed all my sin, I don't know. And and the reality is there's a plan going on behind the scenes that Job doesn't know about. But the challenge is, is the fact that on earth, people are drawing straight lines from good morals to good blessings. And they equate that if God blesses me, therefore it must mean that he's pleased with me. So this man's wealth is not just about money. This man's income is not just about his status in life. This man's wealth is about the fact that he believes God is pleased with him and that's why he's so loaded. So for Jesus to go after the wealth, he's not going after his money. Uh-uh. He's going after the basis upon which this man views God. He's going after the essence of what it means for him to be in favor with God, what he thinks in terms of God's blessing him. He's going to go after the very thing that he believes makes him a prime candidate to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes right after the idol of his heart, 
The conduit is money, but the idol is his self-assuring self-righteousness. And that's why he tells him, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. However, this young man walks away from the offer. He, he can't part with the very thing that he thinks is the sign that he's approved. I can't give this up. This is my life. This is how I know God loves me. This is how I know that I'm, I'm blessed. If I give this away, if I just sell it all and just follow you, that means I'm going to lose the very foundation of how I even understand you. It says, when he heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. The word for sorrow here is more than just saying that he was sad. The, 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 the word means internal tension, personal pain. In some cases, the word means irritated or angry. The problem here is that his riches are a conduit for praise. And he wants another manageable action that he can take in order to give further evidence that he's a really righteous man. The problem is, is he's so far from being righteous, but he doesn't see it. And as a result, he left sorrowful, dejected, and perhaps even angry. This is the problem of the elder brother. Thinks that his good works should result in a party. Thinks that his good actions should result in divine blessing. And this performance mentality, friends, is a killer. Again, here's what Keller says. Elder brothers may do good to others, but not out of delight in the deeds themselves or for the love of people or the pleasure of God. They are not really feeding the hungry and clothing the poor. They are feeding and clothing themselves. The heart's fundamental self-centeredness is not only kept intact, but nurtured by fear-based moralism. Underneath the seeming unselfishness is great self-centeredness. Do you see it? Listen, you can use anything to pump up your self-worshipping heart. You can use give money away, feed the poor, go serve God in a foreign setting, involve in ministry. It's the good stuff that actually creates damnable good works because it's really about us. See, the problem here is that this rich young ruler doesn't like the fact that Jesus played by his rules and the fact that his self-centeredness now is being surfaced. It's cloaked in a garment of prosperity and success and righteousness. And the result was this young man was miserable. He walks away. Again, Keller says this, religious and moral duties are a great burden, often a crushing one. Elder brothers are under a great pressure to appear, even to themselves, happy and content. As long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you will never be sure you have been good enough for him. So self-assuring works are a tragedy. They become the means by which you will try and justify yourself. It's a tragedy because of the degree of pride and self-deception and worthlessness of these actions. And the very thing that you're proud of is actually the very thing that causes separation between you and God. And that's why the problem is damnable good works. Now understand, this is not just a problem before you come to Christ. That's, that's problem one. This also can be a problem after you come to Christ, which is why Jesus uses this moment to talk to his disciples about what it means to live in the kingdom. And in so doing, Jesus gives them and us three warnings. 
So the departure of the rich young ruler would have been very disappointing and unsettling to the disciples because after all, from their point of view, he would have been an excellent prospect to join their ranks and Jesus treated him in a way that probably generated a ton of questions. And so in verses 16 to 30, Matthew records some warnings for us to heed. Here's the first one. It should be obvious. Friends, we have to beware of the danger of self-sufficiency. In verse 23, Jesus said that it is only with great difficulty that a rich person enters the kingdom of heaven. And then he says it even more extreme. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in years, years ago, some people tried to explain this by saying there's this gate in, in, in the Old Testament, and in order for a camel to go through, he had to get on his knees, and then he could make it through. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, you see that needle and how tight that is? See this big camel? Got it. See his hump? See that? It, it, it's, it's easier for a rich man to get in the kingdom than for that camel to go through that needle. It's meant to have the disciples go, wow, that's not going to happen. That's the response Jesus is looking for, because that's what they do in a moment, and we'll see this in a second. What Jesus is talking about here is to beware of self-sufficiency. Again, the danger is in drawing a clear line between your good actions and God's blessings, and thinking, well, the reason God blesses me is because I'm good. And money's not the only issue. Someone says, well, your children seem so obedient, and wow, they're growing in the Lord, and you say, thank you, praise the Lord, and, which is really code for, I know, I'm great, you know. And, <laughs> or or, you, or you, your business starts growing, and, and you're, you're doing really well, and financial prosperity is coming your way, and someone says, wow, how'd you do it? Well, we just, you know, we just tried to seek the Lord, and behind the scenes, you're like, we did that, but I, I did a lot of stuff too, and, 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 and plus God loves to bless the righteous, and I'm kind of a righteous guy, and, and, you know, and, and you start to equate blessings of God with your worth. You start to operate in a quid pro quo spiritual world. That God gives you this for that. Now don't mistake me, all good gifts come from above, James 1.17, but it is often the case that we begin to assume that since we have received good gifts, we must be good. There is a big difference, friends, between knowing that you've been blessed and thinking you deserve to be blessed. Huge difference. There's a big difference between knowing that you've been blessed and thinking that you deserve to be blessed. The problem isn't wealth. Just change the the, the analogy, whatever you want, because whatever you're trusting in, whatever becomes the object where you think, ah, see, God's pleased with me because I have this. I've got this in my life, therefore God has blessed me because of who I am. Put that in for the wealth or the riches and the rich young ruler. The problem is not receiving the blessing of God. The problem is thinking that you deserve that blessing. And this is tested in one of two ways. First, when God gives you a blessing, do you become proud? Think that you deserve it. Does the blessing become a mirror? And secondly, and more telling, when God takes your blessing away, are you filled with anger or despair? You see, if if you think that obedient children are a sign of God's approval of you, that you're righteous, and then if they go AWOL, suddenly now, what? I was living righteously. How could this happen? Something's wrong. And what's wrong is your theology. What's wrong is your view of yourself. 
And it ought to have been that the moment your kids began to be righteous, that you say, God, thank you that you're righteous, because I know that anything that happens in them is not because of me, it's because of you. Because anything that happens in me is not because of me, it's because of you. Because if it was left to me, I would be worthless. It can also cause despair, where God takes something away and you just can't even process, how, how could this happen? In another book that Tim Keller has written on the idols of the heart, he says that there's a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is losing a thing. Despair is losing the thing. You know you have an idol in your heart when something is taken away, and it's not just you're sad, it's like you've collapsed. Like, you're coming apart at the seams, and suddenly you realize, this isn't just a thing, this is the thing. And that's what happens when an idol of the heart, and when it becomes your identity and the essence of who you are, when that's removed, like with this rich young ruler, you, I, I, I won't follow you with that. So the issue is not limited to money. Money is the conduit. Anything can be the conduit. So be careful you don't write this story off because you don't feel wealthy. The question is, what do you trust in as a subtle proof that God is proud of you? And what is it in your life that if God asked you to give it back to him, you might be mad or walk away because that's not how it works? I do. I read my Bible, I pray, I give, and I have kids that walk in righteousness. That's how it works. I, I, I read my Bible, I pray, I give, I go to church, and, and, and you're going to bless me. I'm going to have the job I've always dreamed, I have the marriage that I want. And when that doesn't work, people are like, no, no thanks, I'm out of here. And the reality is their problem is not just that they don't understand God. The problem is they have a God within their own heart. So beware of self-sufficiency. Here, secondly, trust fully in the power of God. Jesus' statement to the disciples was alarming in, in their minds, if you're saying that a camel has to go through an eye of a needle, and that's like a rich man getting saved, then who can be saved? And the reason they say that is because they're assuming that the rich man is blessed by God. If the people who are really blessed by God and have his approval have to be like a camel through an eye of a needle, then their, their, then their question was, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' answer is telling. He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, all the way back to the children issue of dependency. He says, exactly. If you think this is impossible, you're right on. You can't do this. God has to do this. God is the one who has to invade your heart. You cannot do this on your own. That's step one for salvation, and that's a thousand steps the rest of your lifetime in sanctification. The work of grace begins in your heart when you come to the realization that, God, I need your help. So it's not the people in this room who say that that make me nervous. Who come to church and are like, God, I need your help. It's the people who drove up this morning and in their mind they thought, boy, I'm so excited to see all these people here because there's a lot of people in this room who really need help. Those are the people who make me really nervous. So the question is, what are you relying on? What are you trusting in? What do you hope in? What defines you? What do you think you need? The best words and the most simple words in your life can be, God, help me. I've messed up my life. Here's the final thing. And it is that you live by dying. Peter asks a question about the future. Peter says, see, we have left everything and follow you. What then will we have? I don't think he's asking selfishly or sinfully. I think he just really wants to understand. How does all this work? Because you're like talking backwards language here. This doesn't make any sense. 
And Jesus tells them then about the real blessing of God. He says this in verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and every one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So pregnant with promise, this verse. Jesus is making a promise. He says, truly I say to you, He's saying that the real reward is coming in the renewal, that there's another world, another life, another existence, another new heaven and new earth, and the real life is in that world. Ultimate victory belongs to Jesus. He says the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. This is just a reminder that the ultimate all-stater, the ultimate all-American, the superstar on the team is Christ. And any throne that you sit on is a vice presidential throne. Any ruling that you have is subservient to his rule. And isn't the essence of our problem that we tend to confuse those practically? Christ is the head of his church. Jesus is the head of your home. Christ, you are to work as unto the Lord, not unto man. It's about Christ, 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 Christ in all, and him supreme in everything. And then he says, they will share in his glory. You who will follow me will sit on twelve thrones. And then he says that they will have lost nothing. Listen to this promise. Everyone who has lost houses or brothers, etc., etc., for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. In other words, in case you're wondering, you mean I live like this? How does this work? Jesus says, you lose things in this lifetime. You will never lose them in total. Meaning... In the renewal, Christ and being around him and experiencing the beauty of who he is is payback for all of the hardship, the difficulties, the striving to realize that your good apart from Christ was worthless. And then he ends this way, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jim Elliott who was martyred in 1956 in Ecuador, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, you, you, you gain, you live by dying. You, you live by realizing, I need help. So, do you see why there may very well be more kids than rich men in heaven? The problem isn't wealth. The problem is thinking that blessings from God come because you're special or more righteous than others. The problem is self-sufficiency, and it's the dependency of a child that Jesus wants us to see. And what he's doing here is he's cautioning us about this elder brother mentality, this perspective that reeks of spiritual pride and self-justification. He calls us to see that the problem is not just our sins. No, that's a problem. But our real problem is our damnable good works. And the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus because he couldn't handle the thought of letting go of the very thing that defined him. The thing that he felt gave him his existence, his power, his authority. The thing he felt like God gave him so God would say that I love you. And yet the reality was he was using the, the blessings of God as a mirror to make much of himself. And what he failed to realize is that the one person who could make him spiritually acceptable to God was standing right in front of him. The young ruler's view of himself blinded him to Jesus. So the question is, 
Are you more like a dependent child or more like a rich young ruler? The question is whether or not you will run to Jesus for help so that you can be saved not only from your obvious sins, but also from your damnable good works. And say, Christ, oh Christ, I need your help. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would apply this word today to our hearts that we could see ourselves in light of how you really see us today and in light of the, the powerful, triumphant work of Christ. Lord, I pray today that you would open the eyes of some who could see that their works of righteousness in the past, whether it was becoming a member of a church or being baptized or being confirmed or all these things that they've done, giving money away, all of these things have only served to further reinforce how far away they are from you. And today, by your Spirit, open their eyes and help them to see that and then cause them to turn by faith in Christ and to say, Lord Jesus, help me today. I put my trust in your work, not mine. And then, Lord, for hundreds of folks who know this and live this, I pray that we live it every day. And when things come that make us realize, I can't do this, would you bring us back to the cross and help us to celebrate there and not get angry? And just to say, Lord Jesus, I I need your help. And forgive us for the countless ways that we use your blessings as a mirror of narcissism. So help us, Lord. We trust in your Son, who is everything we could ever hope, ask for, or need. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Listen, there'll be some folks up here before you leave. We'd love to pray with you if there's a spiritual need in your life. We'll be here. I'll be here. Love to be able to just talk with you a bit, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.